You are tuned in to the Jackson Hole Connection, sharing fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. I am truly grateful for each of you for tuning in today. And support for this podcast comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, bringing the Jackson Hole community residential and commercial food waste composting options. Call 307-733-7678 for more information. Compass Real Estate, the region's largest and most dynamic real estate company in the Valley. For more information and to view current listings, visit compass.com. Today, I'm going to begin the episode with a quote. This one is not an original by me, like I've done the past few weeks. Here we go. What lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. That's from Oliver Wendell Holmes. I pulled that quote from the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which we've probably all read, but if you haven't read it or perused through it recently, I recommend picking up that book once a year and or a few times a year, just to reference some of the information that Stephen Covey has in there. It can always help us and remind us of what our purpose is and why we do and how to accomplish what we want to accomplish. And today you are listening to episode number 231. My guest today is Dr. Peter Rourke. And Dr. Rourke is one of the founders of Dog Is My Co-Pilot. After tragedy struck Peter, he found himself in a really dark place in life. And a good friend of his suggested that Peter find a purpose. And I would say that Peter certainly found a purpose. That he certainly found. And which is to save dogs from kill shelters. It took some time to figure it out, but he he did figure it out. And Dog Is My Co-Pilot has saved thousands of dogs. Now they fly cats as well. And they started off with one little plane, which Peter's going to talk about the growth of Dog Is My Co-Pilot, the nonprofit. Growth of one plane based in one community to now two planes based in two different cities around the country. And guess what? They're getting ready to add another plane and another community, which they serve in this country. So they're going to be covering quite a bit of the country by the end of this year. And as Peter shares with us today, be a part of the solution. And that can be applied to any problem you may find. Peter shares how you can be part of the solution and why having some faith and great partners will build success with time, determination, and lots of hard work. Peter, thank you for joining me here today at the Jackson Hole Connection. I'm delighted to find you on the ground and be able to have some of your time today. Well, thank you for having me, Stefan. You're very welcome. And Peter, I love learning people's history and background, and I'd love for you to start off by sharing where is it that you were raised, and are you a native of Jackson? And if not, where? how did you land here? My children are natives, but I am anything but. I was born and raised in uh, northern New Jersey in a New York City suburb. It's a community where people were either on their way up or down the economic ladder, ladder. so we had a broad cross-section of things. My father was an only child and wanted a big family, uh, so I was one of seven. So, uh, and he liked to take a big family vacation every year. So when I was about 10 years old, we all piled up 
uh, piled into the Rambler Ambassador station wagon with the Basset Hound. And uh, he says, we're going to go check out some of these uh, parks in the West. So we went to Estes, Rocky Mountain National Park, Grand Teton, Yellowstone, drove up to Glacier, up to Banff, Canada, and it changed my world. I mean, I, I couldn't figure out why anybody would want to live anywhere but in the Rocky Mountains. And uh, I mean, I was completely smitten. So at that point, I started plotting my escape. And being the youngest of the four boys in the family, my father had gone to Rutgers College, which was a men's school. And so my three older brothers did not. So it fell upon me to, to go there. So I, I did my undergrad at Rutgers College. I had had enough in New Jersey at that time. So I moved all the way to Baltimore to go to medical school. Not that far away, but, you know, mm -hmm. they say it's, uh, it's like an outhouse. You want it close enough for the convenience, but far enough away that you don't get the smell. <laughs> so uh, after I finished medical school, I matched to the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque and did my internship and residency in uh, orthopedic surgery. I then followed that with a hand surgery fellowship at the Good Sam Hospital in Phoenix. And then a knee surgery fellowship in South Lake Tahoe with uh, Richard Sedman, who recently passed away, rest in peace. Got a job offer to practice in Sun Valley, Idaho, and I just was absolutely delighted. Moved to Sun Valley, had mountains, aspen trees, a ski area, everything I was looking for. And I just couldn't figure out what was wrong with the place. And it, it took me a couple of years and it's, uh, Sun Valley is, it's really an LA suburb and it's, uh, it's a ski resort that built a small mountain town. And so mm -hmm. after four years, I was looking for my escape. So moved over to, uh, Jackson when patients from Jackson started seeing me in Sun Valley, because the three orthopedic surgeons who were practicing in Jackson all left at the same time, some political, you know, confrontation with the hospital administrator. And honestly, I, I have yet to be on an airplane flight when they, the stewardess rings the button excuse me, we have a medical emergency. Is there a hospital administrator on board? You know, that just, that just doesn't happen anyway. So they always look at us as the source of the problems and yet we're the, we're the solution. So I moved to Jackson in the spring of 1990, moved there with my wife, Squirrel. And then, uh, we had two children born. They were born and raised one in the old hospital, one in the new hospital, uh, started building my practice and, um, just really, really loved it. I felt I was at home. I was at home. And so worked really hard. I worked hard for the community and the community was exceptionally good to me. I mean, it was uh, a good relationship. And one of the things I teach you, what they never teach you in medical school is how to say no. So, you know, you get a call, you're in the ER to go see your patient, if, even if you're not on call. I mean, that's, that's just... That's kind of old school. You don't see a lot of that now, um, but uh, that's that's how I practice. So I practice until, unfortunately, Squirrel and I went our kind of our separate ways. We made great friends, two children to raise, and we raised them together very well. And then uh, remarried, and two months later, my wife passed away of a cardiac arrest, and cool. it was it was brutal. Yeah, that, it absolutely crushed me. And that was in May of 2012. 
And I just walked out of the office. That was it. I, I quit medicine and I retreated to my lake house up in Montana. And I mean, there were mornings I would make a pot of coffee, sit down and uh, with the coffee mug in my hand and look up and the sun is setting. I'm going, what the hell just happened? I mean, that grief can be so consuming. And if, and hopefully you'll never experience it, but sadly we all do. And everyone handles it differently. But uh, I mean, I had, you know, it just, it destroyed me. We had a mutual friend, my wife and I, who called me after a couple months and said, you know, Meg would want you to be happy. She wants you to be happy. So you need to knock that shit off. So I thought, okay, it's been a number of months. Um, and you never really get over it. You know, I'm still, she's still in the back of my head mourning her. And, but um, I, I'd been a pilot before I went to medical school and worked my way through medical school, teaching flying and doing uh, charter work, sightseeing tours over the Chesapeake Bay. The, so I was familiar with aviation, had my own aircraft. I'd done a couple rescue flights uh, with my wife, Meg, and it was kind of a one dog, one location, one time, and, and then you move on to the next flight. There's an organization called Pilots and Paws. And really, these are a bunch of pilots who are using the dog as an excuse to go fly the airplane. But, you know, honestly, for that, for that dog, I mean, it's a game changer. It changes their world. So, you know, how can you argue against that? Except that it's not very cost effective. So I started with that model. And then Animal Adoption Center in Jackson wanted to start flying dogs in from San Francisco. Marty Watts runs San Francisco SPCA. And they wanted me to fly them in. And I thought, perfect. I'll do that. So we, we can do a flight every other week or however you want to. So I flew out to San Francisco, met Marty Watts, and Marty had a nice lunch out for us and chit-chatted and jibber-jabbered. And she was sitting there just kind of studying me. And then after lunch, she pulled me aside and said, I have a, big, a, a bigger mission for you. I said, uh, these folks in Jackson, yeah, that's great, but they don't need your help the way this woman needs your help. Her name is Sharon Loman. She's in Merced, California, which is in the Central Valley of California. I would love for you to go down and meet her. So I flew down the next day and met Sharon at the airport. She walked me through the municipal shelter. Now, Sharon runs a, a private organization called New Beginnings. And these folks are, were desperate to save animals. They would go into the municipal shelter. They would find the most readily adoptable animals. And they would put them in a crate, put them in a van, and drive them to Seattle, Portland, Missoula, Boise, Spokane, Salt Lake City, Denver, you name it. And these are like 16-hour trips, and they're taking 20, 25 dogs at a time. And for any of you who have ever been involved in animal transport, you know that dog gets in the crate, and the dog gets out of the crate when it gets to its destination. You don't stop every three hours and let him out and pee. So it's brutal. It's really, really? tough on everybody. And there's an incredible sense of urgency on the part of the drivers who they can't stop. They, don't, they can't stop and rest and check into a hotel overnight or whatever. And then they get there and turn around and drive back. And the municipal shelter at that time was euthanizing 94% of all the animals that came into the shelter, completely overrun. And they didn't have an outlet for it. I mean, the dogs are coming in. People aren't going to the shelter to, to adopt the dog. Uh, a lot of owner surrenders mostly picked up with strays. And I said, Sharon, I can do that flight for you in about four hours. All right. 
let me take over for you. So I was flying a, a small six-seater aircraft at the time, a Cessna 206, a capable airplane, but the size is, is rather limited. And I could put in 20 or 25 small crates, you know, like chihuahuas or minpens or cats or whatever. And sadly, the, the big dogs were being left behind because if I put two of the larger crates in, I would bulk out and now there's no more room. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't a weight issue. It was the size of the crate. Mm -hmm. So I struggled with that for a couple of years. And then I absolutely knew I had to scale up. So I, the aircraft that I had in mind was a Cessna Caravan. It, it's what the FedEx uses for hauling the crate. You've seen them, this single engine, high wing aircraft with a turbine engine on the front. And so. I went looking for one and I mean, they cost $3 million a copy and you know, we didn't have that kind of money and I didn't have that kind of money. So I hired a broker. We looked and looked and looked and looked, uh, all the aircraft that were in our price range, like seven figures, a million dollars had either been, you know, crashed into a lake and repaired or, I mean, they, they had terrible histories with these things. So we found one up in Canada. And a mining company that was shutting down its flight operations. And they would fly in and out of the old backcountry strips. And when I saw it, I mean, the paint's chipping off of it. I mean, got dents all over it from the rocks on the runway. The interior, the ceiling is falling down, like the ceiling in your grandfather's Oldsmobile. I mean, it was just a terrible shape. But in Canada, they are very specific about their maintenance on the aircraft. So we went through the maintenance log, perfect mechanical condition, complete eyesore. I said, perfect, perfect. Mm -hmm. Dogs don't care. I don't care. The only thing I care about is what's forward of that firewall, you know, keep that turbine spinning and keeping me in the air. So the next thing I did, I had to come up with the money. And so I mortgaged my house, gave the million dollars to the nonprofit as a loan without any plan on how to get it back. But I didn't care. I figured this is the right next. So suddenly we're, we're going from flying from 20 animals at a time to up to 200 animals at a time. And that, in, that created whole levels of new ways to make mistakes. And so no one group can take 200 animals. So you either have four or five groups or four or five destinations or a combination of both. So. Now I'm leaving the right dog at the wrong airport, the wrong dog at the right airport. It's really, we have it figured out now. We have it, we have it, we have it um, all ironed out, but you know, it was interesting. The other thing that I found was that when you're loading up the airplane and you close the door, you have like 150 or 200 panting dogs in there, a lot of hot breath, all the windows fog up and all the instruments, I mean, Think the back seat of the Toyota, uh, the Volkswagen Bug, high school prom night. All right, you know. Old uh -huh. <laughs> so we had to carry handkerchiefs and towels to wipe everything down. And but once we get up to altitude, you know, things cool up, and that's no longer a problem because it starts freezing on the windows and stuff. So I did that for a couple of years, and then um, we get a phone call from uh, the Petco Corporation, their their foundation arm, and uh, they said, "Oh, we've been." we've been watching you. I said, great. And they kept asking endless questions, endless questions. And I didn't even know where it was going. And so finally at the end, the gal says, well, uh, no more questions. And, and I was really cheeky at that point. I said, are you sure? Not even one more question. And she says, no, I'm good. 
I said, oh, so what can we do for you? She said, well, we're going to give you the Love in Action Award for Petco, and we're going to grant you a quarter million dollars. And my jaw just dropped. Kara hmm. Pollard, who is the executive director, who is, uh, do you know Kara? Do you know her? Kara and Mark. Mark runs OSM in uh, Jackson. In any, I might yeah. know them. Yeah. So Kara, it's just a sweetheart. She, she's everything that I'm not, you know, I'm brusque, I'm rude, I'm short with people and she's just the opposite. So, um, she started crying and I thought, wow, this is great. So now that allowed me, and up to this point, I'm flying five or six days a week myself doing all the rescue flights and I'm getting a little burned out to be quite honest. And I wanted to be home with my dogs. So it allowed me to go out and bring on a couple new pilots. And these are all volunteer pilots, but it, it costs about 10,000 bucks per pilot to train them every year and through recurrent training for the insurance requirement. Now the caravan is a simple airplane to fly. I mean, it, it's big, it's slow, uh, and it's no, nothing happens really quickly. It's got a turbine engine, a lot of power, a lot. It's very roomy compared to the other aircraft. And so the pilots uh, were more than happy to fly. So we did that for a couple of years. Then I started thinking, well, we can't keep up with the demand. So I'm thinking we have to, we have to get another airplane. So we started yeah. looking and started looking and my, my board, and we had just recently, it took seven years to pay off a loan. So we had the board in their infinite wisdom said, okay, no more loans. We're going to pay cash for this next airplane. Now, cost of everything goes up. And so we finally found an aircraft for close to $2 million. And uh, Kara went out there and really beat the bushes. And she and I worked hard raising the money and we were able to raise the funds. So now we have two caravans and we have about a dozen volunteer pilot flying for the organization. We fly from March until November because during the winter, I mean, when you, when you think about it, you're flying a single engine airplane during the winter over the Rocky Mountains. What could go wrong? You know, it's just how much. <laughs> right. Exactly. So now you look at our map and it looks like a map of Southwest Airlines. I mean, we're, we're national and oh, yeah, really? we, we still kind of struggled financially. And then, I mean, the greatest thing in the world happened to us. I got a call from Connor Knight, who from CBS Sunday morning. And he says, I want to do a piece on you. I said, are you kidding me? I mean, I grew up watching Charles Corral. I mean, I would just, I would have loved to be on that program. And it took him a couple of years to get it past his uh, board back in New York. But we finally shot the thing and it really put us on the national map and allowed, it expanded our fundraising because we're a 501c3 and we never charge. We never charge our senders or receivers. We offer these these gifts for free. I mean, it's not a gift. I mean, we're in transportation. And honestly, uh, people say, wow, that's really great. You're a hero. I'm going, no, I'm not. You know, I'm a bus driver. You know, the real heroes are the ones who walk into those shelters every single day and deal with those animals, cleaning out the stalls, changing the water, exercising them, grooming them, teaching them leash training, tip, uh, simple voice commands, trying to get them ready for adoption. Because that's really the only option a lot of these places have. So now we have about 100 partners. We fly basically from the south to the north. And the farther south you go in the United States, the worse it is. The farther north you go, the better it is. Jackson, 
dog heaven. Portland, Seattle, Spokane, Boise. I mean, these are all places where that, and we fly the dogs in, they're gone in a couple of days. So we're constantly flying the same routes. And basically we have the same repeating flight schedule that repeats over a, a two or three week period. And I'll give you an example of, of what, what I would do. Jump in the airplane, I fly down to Hobbs, New Mexico. Spend the night, load up at 4.30 in the morning um, when it's nice and cool for the dogs. And wheels up by about 5, 5.30. First stop would be Denver. Uh, second stop would be Fort Collins. Third stop would be Rock Springs. Fourth stop would be Salt Lake City. And then, boom, down to El Paso. Spend the night. Repeat. Get up. Start loading at 4.30 in the morning. Fly the dogs to Troutdale or Portland, Oregon. Up to Seattle, to Spokane, Walla Walla, Boise, Missoula, and then back. And so it's a that's a three-day trip. A lot of flying, about 10 or 12 hours a day sometimes. Weather can sometimes be an issue, but we're all ATP, airline transport pilot, rated. So uh, we can handle the weather. It's just how much you want to white knuckle it, you know, when you're flying. It must be fun, you know. Yeah. And this is what I tell these guys. This is this and gals because we have women who fly with us too. And so I use that generically in a, a neutral sense. This is a want to. It's not a have to. All right. We want to go out and we want to do this. We want to save. We want to transport these dogs. We're not saving the dogs. We're giving them the golden ticket to get them to the organizations that will get them adopted. And so we never charge the senders or the receivers. We only fly from kill to non-kill. So if if they're if we get a call from a non-kill shelter, we go, well, your dog's already taken care of. You don't need us. There are a lot of other people who need us. So that's kind of where we are. We, I When I first started, I thought, well, I'll do this for 10 years or 10,000 animals, whichever comes first. And when I was flying the small plane, I mean, I was flying about 1,000 animals a year. And uh, I mean, I really felt good about that. Now, suddenly we're flying 5,000 animals a year. And so wow. we blew, I blew through that 10,000 number. And then uh, last year we broke through 20,000, no, 25,000. And uh, we're going to hit 35,000 this year. We have two aircraft, 12 pilots, a nationwide map. And I'm not done even. It's, it's like one of those ads. But wait, there's more. So order now and Peter Rourke will get a third Cessna caravan and he's going to base it in Atlanta. Why? Because we have one in Driggs, one in Dallas. And the Southeast, as you know, is also very rough for dogs. Very high incidence of euthanasia and their shelters. You know, 80% is not uncommon. Probably 60% is more than norm. But think about that. You know, six out of 10 of all the noses that go in never come out. I mean, that's mm. just, I'm a dog person. You know, I, I like dogs better than most people I know. I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, I, and I've got my two rescues right here. I had four until recently I lost two. That was a bad month. Um, occupational hazard, I suppose, because, you know, <laughs> you see these dogs and it, I don't choose them. They chose me. So it's. So, and the rescue is my favorite breed. So, and I get calls all these times about, oh, find a French bulldog for me. I go, French, forget that. Well, you can go to petfinder.com 
put in French Bulldog, and they'll give you a list of 50 rescue groups that specialize in French Bulldogs. I said, my next dog is going to be a pit bull. Why? Because people think they're, they're inherently dangerous. My experience, they're the most lovable and affectionate dogs out there, all tongue and tail. Because remember, animal behavior and this dog population problem is not a dog problem. It's a people problem. And so if all we have to do is educate the people. What's the problem? What can we do to fix it? And so really, you're either you're part of the solution or you're part of the problem. All right. Choose. And there, here are the four ways that they can choose. You can go adopt an animal. Adopt, don't shop. All right. And better yet, adopt two. They keep each other company. And they say, well, you know, I don't have time for the dog. Oh, yeah, you're right. They're better, much better lying on a cement floor with, you know, concrete with five of the dogs crammed in there waiting wait to be euthanized. They don't mind waiting for you when you get home. Um, and if you can't adopt, then foster a dog. Get it out of the shelter. Let it know that it has an opportunity. You can see their behavior changes. It takes about three weeks and it's, uh, they can really come around. And if you can't adopt and you can't foster, then go by your local shelter and volunteer. Sweep out those stalls, change the water, exercise the dogs, help groom them. They all could, all could use some help. And if you can't do that, then donate. And you say, well, I don't want to give them money. I don't want, I don't know what they're doing with it. Drop off some old blankets some leashes, a bag of dog food. I mean, there's so many different ways that you can help and be part of the solution. I mean, it's people, they're all black and white. I mean, this whole thing is gray. And so we need to get more people out there. We need to educate them and make this problem go away. That is a load right there. And I so appreciate it. And I'm, I'm not quick at math. I would say in the number of years that you've been flying that what close to half a million animals have been saved uh, not by me no remember i was flying a, a thousand animals a year oh yeah. a year okay so like i said i'm not very no that's fine my math. but now we're, we're with your... the two aircraft we're flying a thousand a month and so uh-huh we passed twenty five thousand dogs i would love to see them all in one room yeah loud <laughs> room yeah you need like the super dog yeah yeah that's right it brings up an interesting point because people always ask me, well, it must be really noisy on those flights. It's not. You know, what's that? They're making noise when we're loading the aircraft. They're seeing the other dogs and working and talking and jibber jabbing. Uh -huh. But once that turbine spins and the noise starts in the aircraft, they haven't heard that noise before. And they're probably wondering, is it going to hurt? I mean, they, these dogs have had like the worst life you can imagine. And they don't realize they're on the aircraft. They have a golden ticket. They're going to go live in the Northern Rockies with a family that knows how to take care of their, their dogs. We fly cats too, about 10%. <laughs> so just, but just, but we put them way in the back of the aircraft, uh, not only because of weight and balance, but they're noisy. I mean, they, they almost never settle. Cats, the, that meowing. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. So Peter, we're going to take a quick break to get a word from one of our sponsors and then come back. I have uh, a load of questions for you. Great. I'll be here. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling estimates that approximately 3,954 tons of food waste are disposed in the trash right here in Teton County every year. 
This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve our county's goal to reduce waste and recycle more, which will help us aim for zero waste. For more information on Teton County Integrated Solid Waste and Recycling's Curb to Compost Commercial Food Waste Program, visit tetoncountywy.gov recycle and join today. Compass Real Estate is the market leader in Jackson Hole, providing every client with unparalleled professionalism and breakthrough marketing strategies for fine properties. Their organization is comprised of dedicated and experienced real estate professionals, and they offer a collection of some of the most sought after properties in the Valley. For more information on buying or selling in Jackson Hole, visit compass.com or give them a call, 307-733-6060. Peter, welcome back. Remarkable results here. But you said this year you guys will break 35,000 animals. So you said you're based, you're soon to be based in Atlanta. You're based in Dallas. And where's the other location you guys Drake's. are based? Drake's. Okay. Just on the other uh, side so, of the pass. So Drake's takes care of the, West, the 14 Western states. Dallas hmm. takes care of the central part of the country and also going to the East Coast. We're mm -hmm. going to probably not this year, but next year we'll get our third caravan basic in Atlanta. And that will take care of all the East Coast issues. And basically it's moving the dogs from South to North. Okay. And you said this is a people issue. Tell me how people can be better to help solve this issue. Well, uh, it's hip to snip. All right. So spay and neuter is the way to go. People say, well, you know, I, I want them to have this first litter or whatever, or they, they want to buy it from a breeder or, and I have no problem if you want to buy it from a breeder, there should be a tax on that. You know, it's interesting that you, you go in to get your hair cut and they have to have a, a license to do that. They have a, have to have a license to do nails. Why don't they have to have a license to breed dogs? Generate a revenue stream, create a situation where we can police and make sure it's being done humanely. The spay and neuter clinics, I mean, a lot of them, you know, they, they give away these coupons so it's free. And, and a lot of the people who are economically challenged maybe don't have the time or the ability to get to these locations. And so now they're doing mobile spay and neuter clinics. That, that, that's really the key. It's a spay and neuter is, is the answer. So people are breeding dogs and then they sell them and then those dogs are not. Yeah, the backyard breeders. And what do they do when they don't sell them? They dump them at the pound. Mm -hmm. And oh, so, and you've mm -hmm. seen these guys at Walmart holding up a little chihuahua, you know, dog for sale or whatever. Yeah. It's just, mm -hmm. honestly, I, I don't think they're bad people. I just don't think mm -hmm. they're part of the solution. So, yeah. And why in the South is it such an issue? Is it their climate? It's just more happening there? Well, it's a lot warmer. The dogs are out running around. They're, uh -huh. they're not really house dogs. I mean, my dogs sleep on my bed with me. Uh, in mine does too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the South, they just kind of run wild. And it's also a cultural thing. They like to keep their dogs intact. You know, maybe a more of a macho thing. I don't know, but it certainly seems to fit. 
And it's just, so they're out there breeding like crazy. The puppies get pregnant, these dogs get pregnant. The owner will just either kill the puppies or they dump the puppies at the pound. And, you know, puppies actually go pretty quickly in the pound. Not everybody wants a little puppy until they figure out. And a lot of them are returned because these, they don't know what the breed is. And then suddenly this puppy is like mm. 90 pound mastiff or something. Mastiff mm. mix. And you go, they don't have room for that. And I go, well, I have room for it. Yeah, it's, it's an educational issue. And if uh, they should start teaching it in schools, I mean, it's, it's just to teach the kids how to be good. And there's, is it, that brings up a point. We used to do um, a critter camp with uh, Merced and Missoula. And once a month, I would fly an aircraft full of, of animals up and they would have a day camp for these kids for the week. And they would sign and assign the animal to this one child and the child would learn how to groom it, how to you know, how feed it and how to walk in voice commands and stuff like that, how to foster the animal. And of course, you know, the deep dark secret is that we want this to be a failed foster where, where the, the parents say, okay, well, it's time to take the dog back. And, and the child is going to go, oh, you can't. So maybe, maybe that's manipulating a little bit, but who cares? If it gets a job done, it gets a job done. We're not harming anybody. Sure. And with all these dogs that you all have saved, just remarkable, remarkable numbers there. Are there any other organizations that are doing this as well? There are a lot of, there are a lot of transport organizations, but they're ground transport. Mm -hmm. they, there's one other, but they're, they're running into a little difficulty right now with some personality issues. They're based out of LA. And of course, there's the Pilots and Paws organization where you can fly the one dog the one time and, and stuff. When, when I was flying the dogs in the 206, we, uh, it cost us about $75 per animal per transport. And you go, well, that's not so bad. And then we get the caravan and it costs us 750 bucks an hour to run this thing. But through economies of scale, now the cost is about $50 per animal per transport. And that's about the same cost as a, um, a spay and neuter fee. Actually, the vets maybe even charge a little bit more. But so it, it's, it's cost effective. And I mean, I, I say the more the merrier. You know, if, if you have an airplane and, and you want to put a dog in it and fly it somewhere, that's great. The, the problem is it ends up costing them about a thousand bucks to transport this one animal. And we're doing it for 50 but they're, they like to fly. And as I said earlier, they're using the animal as an excuse. By the way, a shout out to Dr. Brent Blue, who lives in Jackson. He's one of our original volunteer pilots and has just got back from flight safety doing his annual uh, recurrent training. He's looking forward to flying about 12 or 15 rescue missions for us this year. We ask each of our pilots to fly about between 10 and 15, depending on what their, their schedule allows. And right now we're, we already have our schedule and it, we're, we're going to be flying a hundred and over a hundred rescue flights that we have on the calendar right now. We leave some blanks in there for things that come up. We're, we're frequently asked that if we go and respond to say a hurricane situation or a flood situation and go rescue those dogs. Well, we did that when they had floods down in New Orleans. And so. Well, we did. They had the floods in New Orleans. The shelters are killing up. 
I fly the caravan down there, fly the dogs up to Seattle and, and Wyoming and all over the West. And then about a week later, the owners are coming in looking for their dogs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we don't do it that way anymore. Yeah. Uh, so if, if we have enough heads up and there's a storm coming, we'll fly down and empty the shelters so that the dogs that are recovered can stay in the shelter till their owners come to them. Do you follow? Uh, yeah. yeah. That now, makes sense. We, we okay. did it perfectly backward. Just yet another mistake that, that we made. No, no one was harmed. And, you know, they say, well, we want you to go and bring that dog back. I go, no, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Well, we all, there's, as we grow in any business and in life, we, we make mistakes, but it doesn't mean it's an intentional, harmful mistake, right. but you learn from it and you figure out, okay, how can we still accomplish our goal, but just make the effort better. So we don't have the same well, mistake. We, I have a lot of people helping, but we've got it pretty much wired now. We know we tag all the animals, reverse load them according to destination and, um, on all the health certificates that go into an envelope, we have how many crates are getting out not how many animals, because we count the crates. And sometimes there are, there are two animals in a, in a much larger crate or, you know, a nursing mother with four or five of her pups, you know, will be in one hmm. crate. So that, that's remarkable work, Peter. Well, remarkable work. Well, thanks. And... I, I'm really proud of, of, and believe me, I have a lot of help. And um, just as when I was practicing orthopedics in Jackson, I had a lot of help too. A lot of great people there and uh, and a shout out to Teton Outpatient Services, the, the uh, outpatient surgical clinic that I started back in the late 90s or whatever. Put me in, in a bad way with the hospital, but the patients love. Yeah. And when you, so do you guys have a, a network of shelters where you guys are running these routes with? Yep. Yeah, that's, okay. that's what we All do. Right. And that's, we, I have two. Kara Pollard, who's our executive director and primary fundraiser, is also our chief rescue flight coordinator. Got to be too much for her as we kept scaling up and expanding. So we now have two full-time rescue flight coordinators. And they'll make sure that, that the numbers of animals that they want to put on the plane is realistic in both directions. We're not going to fly down and, and fly five dogs out. It just doesn't make sense to us economically when we can go other places mm -hmm. and fill the aircraft. So they know they fill sure. the aircraft every time. What we don't want to happen is have to leave five or 10 animals on the tarmac because there's no room. So they learn mm -hmm. sizing of the crate. They learn the number of the crates. The rescue flight coordinators, uh, Lynette Duford and Kara Pollard, educate them. There's, there's a group in El Paso, Kayla, she's just an absolute sweetheart. And she was featured on that CBS Sunday morning piece that Connor and I did uh, with us a couple of years ago. And they actually built a mock-up of the interior of the aircraft and practiced loading. And it's the only place I hmm. go to where I just stand there at 4.30 in the morning and drink my coffee. And these gals are in there just putting those crates in like a Tetris master. I mean, and no space left and they know exactly. And we've been fully flown so many flights for them. And it, it's such a pleasure when you're working with the same group over and over again, they become such great friends. And so this is, I 
started taking the rescue flight coordinators, Kara and Lynette, along on these flights. I said, you know, you've never really met these people. You need to meet these people. You're on the phone with them all the time. And, uh, you know, I know their face. And so they actually just last week got back from a 10-day road trip around Texas with all of our Texas partners. And really, we're, we're sourcing about 90% of all our animals out of Texas now. It, it's, it's a mess now. And I think that people care or maybe they can't afford it. I, I don't know. But you go into the shelters down in Edinburgh or down in Laredo on these border towns, mm -hmm. it'll break your heart. It'll, it'll mm -hmm. absolutely break your heart. And you think it smells mm -hmm. bad in the airplane. You go into those shelters and it, it just, it's brutal. And they've got the, the volunteers who go in there and work hard. They're the heroes in my book, not, not necessarily mm -hmm. the receiving group. They're great too, but the sending groups, they're making do with absolutely nothing. It's just absolutely a labor of love. What a big win for them to see all those dogs, um, leave that kill shelter as tears, well. real tears. Mm -hmm. It's just, and this is what I love about these folks. They, they are emotionally involved. They, and they, we could, we could fly for the same group every week, every week, but there are other groups in that same situation. So I, I let the gals, I paint with broad strokes where we're going to do the flights, how we're going to do it, how we're going to coordinate it. So we don't, send a pilot a down and back they're out there for three or four or five days sometimes stringing together a lot of these trips to save having come back to the home base and the additional expense of flying the aircraft empty and we almost never fly empty and so for an example i mentioned i get in the plane i fly down to hobbs new mexico well what i do on the way down i'll stop in rock springs and salt lake city and i'll pick up the crates that I left off with the animals. Ah. And so then I return the empty crates um, to the sending group because that, so these uh -huh. crates are used over and over and over again. And they, they get, there's a water wear tear. And once a month we have a dog that breaks out of its crate. And it's, uh, you know, the first time you notice that, and they work their way up through the front. And then you have this hot breath on your neck <laughs> and you go, <laughs> And there's this dog and you wonder, well, I hope it's friendly. Well, of course it's friendly because the sending group is not going to send a dog with behavioral issues to a receiving group mm. because that's the last time the receiving group will ever work with them. So the, sec the receiving groups will actually cherry pick the animals that are most likely to be adopted. Because remember, this is, they're going to non-kill and those those dogs, mm -hmm. are, if it doesn't work out, we're not flying them back to be euthanized. Uh-uh. That's not what we do. Yeah. I mean, you got to adopt them out. You want it to be a successful adoption. So other people hear about it and want to go to that shelter as well. So. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I, no. the, when we were a child, we, you'd go to the pet store and you buy your dog there. I mean, that's the way it used to be. Nobody knew about the pound, you know, mm -hmm. now that's the best place for it. And. As I mentioned, you can go to Pet Finder. You can find whatever you want out there. And honestly, if it's in Texas and it's coming in this direction, if you want to throw it on one of our flights, we're happy to do it. You just reach out to Kara Pollard at Kara at dogcopilot.org. K-A-R-A at dogcopilot.org. So what's the website uh, if people wanted to reach out and donate to you guys? 
dogcopilot.org. It has mm-hmm. a link on there where you can donate. And it has a lot of the stories, it has pictures of the pilots, it has pictures of the board members. It has a lot of the interviews uh, that I've done over the years. Would love to include this one if we could put a link on it. Sure. On our website, we've got, I, I don't do Facebook. I mean, I did, but it just, when I finally shut it down, I felt like I graduated from high school. It, uh, it was, uh, it just took up so much time, but we have, you know, tens of thousands of followers for DIMC and, um, they'll, they'll go to the website. They'll, they'll pick up your podcast and probably listen to some of the other podcasts, which I'm going to do now. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's stories like yours or for people who are making a, a difference and making an impact and, uh, in, in the world. And as you said earlier, be a part of the solution, just do something. Um, it's not that hard. I not realize it. Mm-hmm. It's not hard to be a part of the solution. And there's a lot of dogs out there that can bring lots of joy to different families. Yeah, You know, the, the folks in Jackson are going to see stray dogs running around. You just don't mm-hmm. see that. You go down to the Central Valley of Merced, you'll you'll see stray dogs on every street corner. It's it's heartbreaking, mm. and these dogs have been living on their own, and they're they're hard to trap sometimes. And I bet they are. And then with the cats, you know, they have the, a catch and release. What they do, they'll catch the cat, they'll spay and neuter the animal, kind of clip its ear so you can tell, and then release it back into the community and that way if mm-hmm. they capture it again and they see the clipped deer they just kind of let it go but uh, that's what they're doing in the larger cities and that's a terrific program doesn't work so well with, with mm-hmm. dogs i'm more of a dog person anyway mm-hmm. my youngest wants two cats and my wife's going to take him to volunteer at the adoption agency to help clean the litter boxes and help take care of the cats to see if he really wants to help take care of a cat before he gets any. Well, cat. you know, at the animal adoption center, they'll foster, they'll, they'll keep cats there. They foster all the dogs out. They don't keep any mm-hmm. dogs there. Uh, there's also the, the, um, shelter that's just south of town by the recycling center. So yes, sir. Uh, you might want to take him. There. There's plenty of volunteer opportunities for him to learn how to clean a litter box before, uh, right. He, yeah. There's, we've had a cat before and cleaning the litter box is not my idea of fun, but, um, we have a dog as well. And so, so, and what kind of dog have you? We actually got a full breed dog, but we started my first dog flash came from the animal adoption agency when cupcakes started it and he came from a no kill shelter and to see how he progressed as I had him, as I had flash over the years was just remarkable. And he was just a sweet, sweet dog. You know, they, they say and we then, project our emotions on the animals. Anyone who says that mm, has never had a dog. I mean, honestly, yeah, they have real emotions and you, they seem, oh, they do. they're grateful. They are grateful. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, my two dogs that are right here, I've got a golden retriever and a black lab and they're both purebred dogs. I mean, but they ended up on my yeah. lap. I mean, I didn't, didn't go looking for them. If someone asked if I would transport them, it was a night, like an owner surrender kind of thing. And um, mm-hmm. I said, yeah, I'll transport them right to my house. <laughs> That's yep. good. I'm glad you had them. And we 
tried adopting a dog, but the dog, we were not the right family for that dog. And what we paid for the adoption fees from the shelter, um, they said, well, we'll give them back to you. I said, no, keep the adoption, the fees that we pay to help find the right family for this dog. So that's not a barrier for the dog to be adopted. And they they found a family for that. Not a unique story. Over a third of the animals Mm. that are adopted are returned. It just doesn't fit. Mm. And they don't fit Mm -hmm. for any number of reasons. But Mm -hmm. don't, you know, what they would do in Texas if it didn't fit, they drive along the highway, open the door, kick the dog out and take off. That's what they do. Mm -hmm. Brutal. Yeah, it is a shame. Yeah. Punishment can't be great enough. Yeah. Well, Dr. Rourke, Peter, I will let you get back to your day. I've so enjoyed hearing the impact in the world that you're making. And thank you for saving all these dogs' lives and and even the cats as well. Well, Stevan, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for uh, helping us get the word out. Jackson's my home. I love Jackson. My kids grew up there, graduated Jackson High School. My son is still there. He uh, attends bar at the coach and... And one of the Thai restaurants in town. So say hi to Buller when you go by. And I mean, people will look at him though. So you have to be Dr. Rourke's kid. I mean, like the mini me. <laughs> it's such a great guy too. Holy smokes. All right. Well, he's your kid. I'm sure he well, is. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, hosting Dog is My Copa. You're welcome. Right, have a great day. You. To learn more about Peter Rourke and Dog is My Co-Pilot, visit thejacksonholeconnection.com, episode number 231. Folks, get out there and help save some animals. You can donate today to Dog is My Co-Pilot. Go to their website and share this podcast. Maybe there's some other dog lovers and cat lovers that you know, and they would enjoy listening to the history and how these dogs and cats are flown around the country to save them from kill shelters. Thank you to Michael for producing, marketing, and editing this podcast. And of course, to my lovely wife, Laura, and my boys, Lewis and William. Your time is valuable, and I appreciate your time. I'm grateful for you spending your time with me and sharing your time with me. And I will see you here back again next week for another episode of The Jackson Hole Connection.